0: All right, I want to take you to the Word of God for a few moments, and this is week two for us of a series that we're calling Q&A, questions and answers. Uh, what does the Bible say about certain topics? We've all had those questions before, right? Whether we want to admit them or not, we've all wondered what the Bible says, or maybe, maybe you've had a situation where somebody has said something to you, and they said it so emphatically and so authoritatively that you just assumed it was in the Bible, But you weren't really sure. Maybe in the back of your mind, you're like, is is that really in the Bible? So so for this series, what we're doing is I've just asked you to submit some questions. And we have a a bowl out there at the Info Center where for the last few weeks, people have been writing some questions in. uh, Things that they'd like to know, what the Bible says about certain topics. And so I don't have a specific text. Uh, to turn to because the questions are not all connected. I've just taken a few questions last week and, and a few questions this week and then next week uh, will be really interesting because uh, I'll just give you one of the questions for next week just as a teaser. Uh, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? That's a teaser for next week. Uh, so we've been tackling some questions that people, you know, it's kind of been a head-scratcher for some people and, and for some of you this is just kind of a, a an affirmation of things you already know or things you already believe, and you're going to go, okay, that's great, I, I knew that, good, good to hear that he, good to hear you got it, preacher, <laughs> I knew that, but glad you figured it out. Uh, and for some of us, maybe, maybe there'll be some clarity in all of this, and so that's my hope and that's my prayer as we move in uh, to the scriptures together this morning. If you have your Bible, take your Bible in your hand, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have a printed edition that you can use, we have them in the pew backs there, And then as much as possible, uh, we're going to put these verses up on the screen for you to follow along. But I just want you to hold a Bible right now. Whether it's uh, leather-bound like mine or hardback or it's an iPod or an iPhone or smart whatever. Uh, Whatever your Bible is, just take it. We're going to ask God to bless our time together in the Word this morning. Father God, I just thank you today for uh, the treasure that is God's Word. Lord, we often take it for granted, but Lord God, I, I'm just so grateful today. Your word is life, God. It, it's, it's a lamp, the psalm said, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It guides us, it directs us. Father God, help us today as we, as we look into this word uh, to not just fact check, uh, to not just uh, try to... Um, build ammunition for an argument but god help us to humble ourselves before the authority of your word help us to see it as the absolute truth and where there's a place of contradiction in your word and our lives god may our lives submit to the authority of your word god i thank you that your word brings healing your word brings joy god there's so much that you've provided for us in your word more than anything god i'm thankful today that your word is your special revelation about who you are. So God, today, may we know you a little more, know a little more about you, know more about your heart for us, God, because we've taken time on this first day of the week to look into your holy word. God, we thank you for it. We love your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen? I heard one evangelist, he used to always make the church say this. He'd say, book of the ages, how I love thy pages. (laughs) I just want you to know the the silliness that goes through my mind every time I say I love the Word of God. I I hear that, and I wish I didn't, but I do. And he used to say, I'm from L.A., lower Alabama. (laughs) Book of the ages, how I love that pages. Now you have to deal with it. Here's the first question that uh, I want to tackle this morning, a question that someone had asked. Did the Trinity always exist? Did the Trinity always exist? Now, I, I don't want to assume too much uh, that we're all on the same plane in answering this question. So uh, let me just start with an explanation of what the Trinity is. Uh, the Trinity is a word that we use to describe uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you've been a part of church, or even a wedding for that matter, you've probably heard those, uh, that terminology used about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What is that? That's the Trinity. That the Bible uh, reveals God as one God revealed in three persons. Uh, so He is one God. In fact, the, the most quoted scripture in all the Bible uh, is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. So we have one God. We don't don't serve three different gods. We serve one God. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is one God, but He's distinct in three persons. And that's confusing. I'll concede to that. That's confusing. And the reason that it's confusing to us is because we don't have any other situation in in life that we can relate that to there's there's nothing else that we can uh, understand in in a trinitary way there's there's nothing else that's one but it's it's three in one i mean we've tried uh you know we used to explain it in in kids ministry uh by holding up an egg you know and you'd see the the outside of the egg that's that's the egg but then if you peel you know the the shell off you've got the hard-boiled part and and that's an egg and and then inside of that you've got the yolk and, and that's an egg. And there's three different parts but it's still one egg. Well it's a good try. It's close maybe but it's not exactly a trinity. We even tried this past summer at Vacation Bible School to explain the idea to the kids. Uh, Steph our, our kids leader she did an illustration where she showed a picture of water and, and, and said what is this? It's water. And then she showed a block of ice and said what is this? Well it's it's frozen water. It's, it's still H2O, but it's, it's ice. And then uh, she had a little humidifier there blowing mist in the air. So what is this? It's vapor. It's, it's water. They're all three water, but they're, they're different. And so we try to come up with ways like that to explain the Trinity in a way that, that people can understand, and in a way that, that people can comprehend it. But admittedly, it's difficult to wrap our minds around the idea of... Three unique personalities revealed separately and yet one God, one God. But just because we can't fully comprehend it doesn't discredit the claims of the Bible. And and that's a a personal note you could jot down in the margin of everything we're saying in this series. Because there are going to be moments for you and for me honestly where I get to the end of my understanding and I just go, that just doesn't really make sense to me but it's God's word. Not because I understand it, it's God's word because it's true. And that's what the writer of Proverbs was talking about when he said, lean not in your own understanding. The reason we shouldn't lean and trust in our own understanding is because it will fail you at some point. If you're depending on your own rationalization, your own comprehension of the way things are, it's going to fail you. But the word says, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. And He'll make your path straight. And so the Trinity is a difficult thing to understand. Now, there's not a verse that you can find Trinity. I told you last week, we talked about the rapture. The word rapture is not in the Bible. It's a word that we use to describe something that's clearly communicated in the Word of God. Same with Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Uh, But it's it's a, a word that we use to describe something that is very clearly seen in the Word of God. And so I I want to talk for just a minute about the Trinity. And I I want to really answer the question, not just did the Trinity always exist, but why does it matter? So stay with me for a minute. Resist the urge to just check out because this is just doctrinal stuff. It doesn't matter. No, it matters. And I want to show you why it matters uh, that you understand that God is a Trinitarian God. And you should resist the urge to check out on me here because ultimately the question, even if that's not your question, the question that you do have... The question that we all have is, is what is God like? And how can I know Him? That's a question that every heart longs to have answered. And when we understand the doctrine of the Trinity, it helps us to come closer to God. And it helps us to understand Him more. So it's important that we understand how God has revealed Himself to us. Because understanding how He has revealed Himself to us helps us to know Him more. So, when you come to worship God, when you come to pray, when you come to give God thanks or to to make a request, when you come seeking God's blessing or His acceptance or, or His forgiveness, we're not coming to three different gods. We're not coming to just the Father. We're not just coming to our Savior, Jesus the Son. We're not coming to the Spirit of God. We're coming to God, one God, who has manifested Himself in three ways. So all three natures of God are are clearly seen through the Word of God. And I just want to, I mean, we don't have time to go through the whole Bible and talk about all the ways that we see the Trinity, but if we just zoom in to the gospel, just the message of the gospel, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Redeemer and Savior. If you just look at that story, I want to show you a couple snapshots of the Trinity. That you you can see for yourself, when you read the word of God, you go, okay, there's definitely three, I mean, it's talking about God, but there's definitely three different persons here. So we're going to look, first I want you to see the Trinity at his birth. The Trinity at Jesus' birth. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, this is where Jesus uh, is coming to the earth. Here's what it says, Luke 1, 35, the angel answered, this is the angel talking to Mary, he said, the Holy Spirit, that's, that's one aspect of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit will come on you, the power of the Most High. I don't know if you like to underline stuff in your Bible, but I'm underlining the Trinity in all these verses. So the Holy Spirit shall come on you, and then it says, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's God the Father. And then it says, so the Holy One to be born. That's Jesus, the Holy One. He's the Son of God. Will be called the Son of God. The Trinity was existent in the birth. The Trinity was also uh, there in Jesus' ministry. When Jesus went to be uh, baptized in Luke chapter 3. He was about to start His ministry. He comes to John and says, I want you to baptize me. And there's this incredible uh, moment that takes place right at, at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized. I underlined that. Jesus was baptized. He was fully man, fully God, but fully man. His cousin was baptizing him, someone that knew him from the time they were babies. And he was praying, it says, as he was praying, heaven opened. Now the next verse, and the Holy Spirit descended on him. There's the Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now the Holy Spirit doesn't always manifest in a bodily form, but in this instance he did. And the reason he did is because the Lord had spoke to John the Baptist and said, the one that you see the Spirit descending on like a dove That's the one. And so this was a sign for John the Baptist that Jesus was the Son of God. And so the Holy Spirit's descending in bodily form like a dove. And in the next verse it says, And a voice came from heaven. Whose voice was it? It was the voice of God. And he said, You are my Son, whom I love with you, I am well pleased. So there's the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. They were evident At Calvary. Quickly, let me read this verse to you in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. It describes this uh, moment of our salvation. Where Jesus offers his life on the cross for us. Through the eternal spirit, the Bible says. Listen to this verse. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, that's our Savior, who through the eternal spirit, that's the spirit of God, the empowering agent, Offered himself unblemished to God. So the Spirit's empowering Jesus to offer himself to God as a sacrifice. How will he cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death? So that we may serve the living God. Just a a snapshot of Calvary. Here's a picture of the Trinity at the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. It says, and who, talking about Jesus, through the Spirit of holiness, that's the Holy Spirit, was appointed the Son, that was Jesus' earthly role, of God, that's the Father, in power, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Appointed as the Son through the Spirit by God the Father. And then we see the Trinity at the Ascension. After Jesus had conquered death, after He had resurrected from the dead, and He's ascending back to the right hand of the Father. Acts chapter 2 says this. Acts chapter 2 verse 33 tells us that exalted to the right hand of God, there's the Father, He, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So just looking at the gospel, this is not all the scriptural text, just the, the life of Jesus. We see a constant interaction between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from his birth to his bodily resurrection and ascension back towards heaven. We see the, this trinity at work together. Jesus and the Father are one. That was the primary, the primary goal of John writing his gospel was to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. That, that Jesus and the Father are one. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, verse 1, he told the disciples, he said, don't let your heart be troubled. And then he said these words, incredible statement, he said, you believe in God, he knew they had faith. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. If you believe in God, believe in me. And he's trying to comfort them with the assurance that when you see me, you're seeing God. And Philip, one of his disciples, was struggling with this. And it still didn't make sense to him completely. After three years of walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, seeing the miracles, hearing the teaching, it still didn't quite make sense. And Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And I want you to look at the response of Jesus in Philippians, or in John chapter 14, verse 8, when Philip said, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. Verse 9, Jesus answered. He said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me ...who is doing His work. Jesus is, Colossians says, the exact representation of God. He's the image of the Godhead bodily. So you want to know what the Spirit is like? You want to know what the Father is like? Look at the Son. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus and the Spirit are one. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6... ...because you are His sons... ...God sent the Spirit of His Son... Into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba Father. So if you say I have the spirit of, of uh, Christ living on the inside of me. I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me. Or I have the spirit of God living on the inside of me. Those terms are all synonymous. It is the spirit of Jesus. That comes into our hearts. I just want to point out before I, we leave this, this question here. That the, the New Testament church believed in the trinity. In fact, when Jesus was ascending back to heaven, when He was going back up, uh, he, He commissioned His disciples, the Great Commission. Many of you could quote it. We're often familiar with the verse in Matthew 28 where Jesus said, Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And then what did He say? He said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then when Paul was writing to the corinthian church he gave this exhortation this was one of the earliest writings we have from the new testament he gave this exhortation in second corinthians he said may the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with you all god the father god the son and god the holy spirit active in the new testament And can I just emphasize to get back to the root question, did they always exist? The answer to that is yes. The answer is, and I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. The Trinity always existed in eternity past. God has revealed himself in many ways. and One of the ways that he's revealed himself is to say that he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Who is and who was and who is to come. And so if you go all the way back to Genesis, you can see it says, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. But the Spirit of God, capital S, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So here's here's two parts of the Trinity. We see God the Father in the beginning, and we see the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. But where's Jesus? Where's the Son? Go down to verse 26 there in Genesis chapter 1. And it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the Sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. How many of you believe that God was not talking to Himself about Himself when He said, let us make man in our own image? He was talking about, He was talking to Jesus. He was talking to His Son. And so we see the Trinity. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. There's all kinds of scriptures that point back to the reality of the Trinity uh, that existed. God has, did not create us because He was lonely. And that's an important thing to know. God, God wasn't just, you know, out there in the void of darkness, in the abyss and thought, boy, I could use a friend. No, God had perfect unity with Himself. Perfect fellowship with Himself throughout all eternity past. And they said, let us make man in our own image. God invited us in to this fellowship out of pure joy and love for us, not out of his own need. I want to answer another question uh, this morning that someone asked last or two weeks ago, and, and I think this is a great question. What does the Bible say about fasting and prayer? What does the Bible say about fasting and prayer? Now, let me just give a a definition of fasting because I think most of us understand what prayer is. Even if you don't think you're good at it, we understand what prayer is. Fasting, just by definition, is abstaining from food and possibly drink for a limited period of time as a mark of religious commitment and devotion or as an expression of repentance for sin. Fasting. What does the Bible say about it? Let me just tell you, there's a lot of of illustrations in the Bible of people that fasted. There's a lot of of scenarios we could look at in the Old Testament, but there's only one specific law that was given about fasting, and it had to do with the Day of Atonement. There was only one um, fast that was required of the people according to God's law, and it's in Leviticus 16, and we won't turn there this morning, but they had to observe a fast in the seventh month. But beyond that, the Jewish leaders appointed different times of fasting. A lot of times it was because of sin. It was because of grieving that people would fast and they would mourn. Uh, Sometimes it was just because of other uh, things that caused stress in the nation of Israel. They would would call a fast. They would call the people to a fast. Well, by the time you get to the New Testament, the the religious leaders in that time, the rabbis, had increased their their regimen of fasting to twice a week. Twice a week they fasted. They would fast on Thursday, and they would fast on Monday. And and they fasted on Thursday because they believed that was the day that Moses uh, went to the mountain, to Mount Sinai. And on Monday they fasted because that was the day that he came back. And so they fasted twice a week. Nothing wrong with fasting that often. In fact, it's probably a good thing. But Jesus actually criticized some of these religious leaders for fasting twice a week. Not because they were fasting, but because the the reason they were fasting, the way that they were doing. It was the heart issue behind it. They were doing it to get attention. They were doing it to to make a show of themselves. They were doing it to, to get people to look at them and to be impressed. And let me just say this. The Bible speaks volumes about having a right heart when you fast. The Bible speaks in depth. So the question really is this. Should we fast today? I don't usually do a poll of the audience or anything, and you're not going to be more or less spiritual by raising your hand. I'm just curious. This is not a trick question, uh, but how many of you, just by a show of hands, you say, you know what, I've I've done a, a spiritual fast. Now I don't mean like the doctor said, don't eat after midnight, because <laughs> you got to drink some weird stuff tomorrow morning. I mean, I mean, just for spiritual purposes, how many of you would, you would say, you know, I've done a fast before, maybe a. Uh, a partial fast, or maybe a total fast no, yeah, some of you, several of you, uh, you' said, yeah, I, I've done that before. Uh, there's different types of fast. Maybe you've done uh, what's called a Daniel fast, and the reason they call it a Daniel fast is because we see, this is the way Daniel did it at times in Scripture. He wouldn't do a total fast, but he would just eat, you know, vegetables and, and drink water, and, and it was for a specific purpose and for a specific set of time, and, and sometimes we do that. Well, so you know what? I'm just going to cut out. Everything except the bare necessities, and I'm going to eat clean, and I'm going to I'm going to pray hard, and I'm going to seek God for a set time, and and maybe you've done a total fast. When I was about uh, two years old, uh, my dad uh, was just praying and believing God uh, about several things, and he decided to do a 30 day water only fast. Now I don't remember this obviously; I was two, but uh, but I've heard them you know tell the story over the years, and and uh, and he just had jugs of water, and he went in the room and. His goal was to read through the entire Bible you know, in that 30 days and just pray and and seek God. And that's pretty radical. I mean, I I don't know of anybody that does that on a regular basis. That was like one of those one-time God moment things. And through the Bible that that happens. There's people that did a 40-day fast. And it was a unique God moment type thing. But should we fast, whether it's just for one day or one meal, uh, should that be a part of our our spiritual relationship with God? I want to look... At a scripture in Matthew chapter six. Go with me there, Matthew chapter six. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is He's well, let me give you the context in this section because he's about to talk about a few subpoints. He's going to talk about giving to the needy, he's going to talk about prayer, and he's going to talk about fasting. Those are the bullet points, but all of those things he's going to cover under the heading of practicing your righteousness. That might be a new term in and of itself. Did you know that you ought to practice your righteousness? That's what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, in the first verse, he says this. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do... You will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So Jesus is saying, look, you should put your righteousness into practice. But don't do it in a way that's just to be seen by people. Don't do it just so that people think you're righteous or so that people think you're spiritual. Uh, Make sure that your heart's in the right place. And then he starts talking about when you give to the needy. When you pray. And then down in verse 16. He gets to the issue of fasting. And he's talking about practicing your righteousness. And how we do it with a right heart. So Matthew chapter 6 verse 16. He says when you fast. Do not look somber like the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces. To show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you. They have received their reward in full. But when you fast. Put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What's he talking about? He's he's saying don't don't put on uh, spirituality. You know, he's saying keep up with your hygiene, basically. You know, put oil on your head and, you know, wear clean clothes, don't... Don't be somber looking. Don't, you know, walk up to people and go, hey man, did you guys eat lunch yet? No, you want to go eat? No, I'm I'm fasting. You know, trying to be spiritual, like bringing it up in the conversation. He says, do it it in secret. Do it between you and your father. You know, let it be from a heart of sincerity is, is what he's saying. And notice that Jesus didn't say, if you decide to fast. But two times in the text, he said, when you fast, do this. When you fast, you should do that. You should not do these things. So Jesus, uh, he fasted. It was a part of his relationship with God. Prayer and fasting was just a consistent part of his relationship with the Father. And he just assumed and expected that it would be a part of ours as well. So when it comes to fasting, here's what you need to know. The motive and the manner are crucial. They're crucial. That's what Jesus is talking about. How you do it, why you do it. The motive and the manner are crucial. But the length and the frequency are optional. There's not not a commandment in the scripture that says you must fast. You don't don't have to fast. There's there's no no law of God that you're breaking uh, by not fasting. So how often you do it? how long you fast whether you say i'm going to i'm going to fast lunch on wednesdays and i'm just going to spend that time praying that that's up to you so maybe that leads to another question then why why should i fast if the bible doesn't say i'm supposed to do it or i have to do it why should i do it i want to just share a few thoughts with you about why you should fast and the reason i want to share these thoughts it's not just to answer a question. I want to share these thoughts to impress and challenge you this morning that maybe this is a spiritual discipline. Your hand didn't go up earlier. You've never considered fasting as something to do to practice or to put into practice your righteousness before the Lord. But I want to challenge you to. Fasting, let me say this, is not a means of leveraging God. It's not like we can twist God's arm. You know, by saying, you know God, I, I skipped I skip two meals now. I've asked you four times for this, but now i, I you know, we're not, you know, uh, I think it was Gandhi that did that at one time. You know, he said like, I'm not going to eat, you know, he just like starved himself. Uh, it was like a silent resistance. You can't do that with God. You can't leverage God. But what fasting does is it gives God the opportunity to leverage us. It gives God the opportunity to leverage our heart, to, to get our attention uh, on a deeper level, on a more serious, attentive level. Because what happens when we fast is we're crucifying the flesh. We're dying to our natural desires. The most basic desire, hunger, food, natural cravings. And when we intentionally say, you know what, I'm going to resist uh, satisfying my natural desires, not just to be hungry, but I'm going to replace that desire with a pursuit for spiritual food. I'm going to replace that desire with a hunger for God. And I'm going to go after God. Then what happens is we, we get laser focused. I mean, our our, our senses are heightened, we're in tune, we're attentive, our stomach might be growling, but we are pursuing a a deeper relationship with God, and we find our spiritual appetite is more satisfied. I want to read something to you out of a book that I read several years ago. I would highly recommend the book The Circle Maker by Mark Batterson. In that book, he writes this about fasting. He said, when you fast and pray in tandem it's almost like a moving sidewalk that gets you to your desired destination in half the time. That's good, isn't it? Fasting is a way of fast-tracking our prayers. Because fasting is harder than praying, fasting is a form of praying hard. I love that. Fast-tracking our prayers. When, you, when we fast, we go before God and, and we, uh, we crucify the flesh in a very practical way. We, we just set our gaze and our diligence upon spiritual food, then, then we find we find we have access into God's presence uh, more easily. You know, the Bible talks in Ephesians chapter 6 about spiritual warfare that takes place in our lives. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul, Paul says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. Uh, We don't have time to talk about spiritual warfare this morning, except to just say it's a reality. He says we have to stand against the devil's schemes. He's attacking our lives. He's working against us. And then, many of you are familiar with it, in the next several verses, he describes the armor of God. Put on the helmet of salvation, and the breastplate of righteousness, and the, the sword of the spirit, and the shield of faith, and Be buckled with the belt of truth and have your shoes shod with the gospel of peace. And he describes all the warfare. So now here we are. We're all armored up. We're all geared up. We're going to fight this battle. How do we fight the battle? Let me read the last verse in this little portion after he describes the armor of God. Ephesians 6 verse 18, he says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. The warfare that we're gearing up for is prayer. And we win and lose the battles in prayer. It's so important that, that we know how to get into God's presence. And that's why fasting is important. And, and to, to our shame, it's been overlooked in the church You don't hear a lot about fasting, and that's why this question doesn't surprise me. What does the Bible say about fasting? It's one of the things we don't like. We like to talk about, you know, potlucks. (laughs) You know, I mean, we like to talk about eating, but we don't talk much about fasting. Ironically, we don't preach about gluttony much either. Did you notice that? (laughs) That's another question for another time. But the reality is, there's a warfare that's going on in your life and in my life. And we do battle best on our knees. And the strength, the strength that we find in prayer often comes when we, when we pray in tandem with fasting. There's not a, a text in the Bible that illustrates better what I'm talking about than in Daniel chapter 10. Now I know I didn't give you these verses back there, but I just want to go here. In Daniel chapter 10, we see a picture of spiritual warfare, and it's so wild. I mean, if you've never read this before, it's kind of mind-blowing to make you go, really? Because this sounds like folklore. When you read this, this sounds like, I don't know, like Greek mythology or something, but this is God's Word. And this is a picture of what happens when we pray and we wonder if God even hears us. Daniel had an opportunity in Daniel chapter 10 to actually talk to one of his guardian angels. You know, we, we kind of wonder about angels, and they're, they're around here somewhere, but they don't have conversations with us. But Daniel had a conversation with his, and it was pretty amazing. He had been praying in Daniel chapter 10. And then he says in verse 10, a hand touched me, and he sent me trembling on my knees, which I would expect would be all of our response if a, if a hand, an unseen hand just touched you. And he said to me, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words that I'm about to speak to you. And stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Now listen to what Daniel learned about spiritual warfare in this moment. Verse 12, then he continued. Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God. Your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. Can I just tell you, that is really encouraging. If you've ever prayed and wondered if God hears me, the angel just told Daniel, the moment you thought, before the words even came out of your mouth, he said, the moment you set your mind towards it, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. The reality is you prayed a prayer this morning and no sooner did it leave your lips. The God of heaven heard it and responded. God responded with an answer, but the revelation is not over. The next verse, the angel says to him, verse 13, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. This is why I said, this, this sounds, if you don't know this is in God's word, and you don't know this is happening in the atmosphere around your prayer life, and you, you read this, you go, really? That, that's amazing. So the moment I prayed, God heard me, and Daniel's prayed the first day and nothing happened, and he prayed the second day and nothing happened. 21 days he's been praying and nothing has happened. And all of us have been there, and most of us at times, if we didn't, we certainly felt like quitting. But we have insight here to what actually happens and why we should pray and faint not. Why we should pray and keep praying. Because he says, for 21 days, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me. Then, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Because I was detained there with the king of Persia. And now, verse 14, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time, yet come. That's powerful. That's powerful. It says for 21 days Daniel prayed and they wanted to bring the answer, God's answer, but there was a heavenly warfare that Ephesians 6 talks about. There was a warfare in the heavenlies that was resisting the answer coming to him. And I just wonder how many times we've prayed till the 20th day and stopped. And we just got so close to to breaking through, and, and we just stopped. And, and that's why fasting is such an important spiritual discipline. Because sometimes we just need to, we just need to, to jump on that, that conveyor of fasting to accelerate our prayer life, to push us past just pressing into breaking through, into really seeing God do something in our lives. You know, when Jesus was with his disciples on the night of his betrayal... The Bible tells us that they went into the garden to pray. And in Gethsemane, Jesus asked a very sobering question of his disciples. And it would be good for us to personalize the question. Because Jesus had gone and he prayed and he came back. And after being gone about an hour, all the disciples had fallen asleep. So instead of praying, they're sleeping. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 40, it says, Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Here's the question we ought to deal with. Could you men, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? Then he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I would say that's true of all of us. It's not that we don't want to pray. It's not that we don't want to seek God. Our spirit's willing, but how many of you know our flesh is weak? Our flesh is weak. And that's, that's why fasting becomes such a powerful way to practice our righteousness. Fasting is a great discipline to incorporate because our flesh is weak. And when you fast, when you say, you know what? I, I'm, I'm cutting out all the sugars. And if you drink a lot of coffee, do it slow. But you say, I'm, I'm just, you know what? I'm, I'm weaning myself off all that stuff. And, and I'm just going to eat vegetables for a week. So, you know, I'm going to do that. I promise you, that's going to be hard. I mean, if that's not your normal diet already, so that, that's going to be hard. And, and you know what? You're going you're to be very conscious of your natural desires. And you know what it's going to take? Willpower. That's the way it is with anything we try to stop doing, right? I mean, it's going to take willpower. And you know how it is if you've ever fasted before? The day you said, I'm going to start my fast tomorrow. Tonight, somebody's going to say, you want to go to dinner tomorrow? It's on me. We're going to the steakhouse. Man, you start salivating. You're like, I'm going to start my fast on Tuesday. Right? It's the, it's the way, It takes willpower. But here's the deal. If, if we will Im- impose willpower, if we will make ourselves be determined in that way to say, you know what, I'm going to do this. My flesh is weak, but I'm going to crucify my flesh. I'm going to exercise willpower. That spiritual discipline is going to give you prayer power. As you crucify the flesh, as you put aside your own desires, it's going to, it's going to strengthen and empower you in the spirit. An empty stomach leads to a full spirit. And if you've never fasted before, I want to encourage you to do it. Try it. Now, don't, don't, get, don't get hung up on, you know, on, on the minutiae of, of are you doing it right? Are you not doing it right? You know, some of you, you just need to fast from like social media. You know, it's it's the, it's the heart here. It's the heart that I'm talking about. I'm not I'm not talking about you know red meat or or, or split hooved animals. I'm just talking about a heart issue of saying, you know what, God, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut some things out this week. I'm I'm not gonna come home and flip on ESPN. This week, I'm going to spend that hour with my Bible open, with some worship music playing, and I'm just going to, I'm going to seek you. You know, it, it, it can be, it can be a, a fast in that regard. But I would encourage you to practice your righteousness in that way. Crucify the flesh and feed the spirit, man. Now, I, I want to answer one more question before, before I wrap this up. And I I won't get to all the details on this, but I thought this was a great question, and I'll I'll try quickly to do it justice. What does the Bible say about clothes and modesty? Now I told you these questions had nothing to do with each other. We're all over the map today, but what does the Bible say about clothes and modesty? This is a a very practical question, a very specific question. If you've got uh, teenagers, uh, you've probably had conversations about this. Uh, if you are a young person, maybe you're wondering, you know, what, what, what does the Bible say, if anything, about clothes and modesty? And, you know, part of me wants to say, wouldn't it be great if there was just guidelines, if I could just show you the verse, you know, here's, here's the length of a skirt, it's in Leviticus, you know. That would be terrible. Honestly, that would be terrible, and I'll tell you why. Because this gospel is for every tribe and every tongue, it's for every culture, And what we would look at and define as modest or appropriate in our culture would totally not make sense in a different culture. And the reality is, the gospel is for the whole world. It's for the whole world. And and the reality is, a lot of times we do damage to the integrity of the word of God as the people of God by, by uh, by putting the gospel in our culture and trying to make the gospel speak specifically to America about a dress code when maybe in reality that's not there. Now there are some things about it and I'm going to get to those. But I'm just saying that historically the church has done damage to the integrity of the power of the gospel to change lives when we don't focus on the power of the gospel to change lives. We focus on the rules of the church to fix people. You get what I'm saying? So the Bible does speak to issues of modesty but in a world that's constantly changing with with fashion ideas and, and trends and all of that all I'm saying is we need to be careful uh, not to not to try to stick Jesus name on our rebuke to try to give it more credibility when reality is a lot of times it's just our preference and most all of the time it's just culture here's how here's how we come to a not just modesty, but issues that the Bible doesn't speak specifically to our culture about. Here's how we come to it. First of all, you understand that the Bible speaks, uh, the law of God communicates in two different ways. One is through the precepts of God's word, and the other is through the principles of God's word. And the easiest way that I, I can explain those two things is that the precepts of God's word are, are like, uh, if you're looking at traffic signs, they're like the stop sign. They're like the no U-turn sign. Very clear. You get pulled over for a U-turn, you know, you you can't say, I didn't understand what that sign meant. It's very clear, no U-turn. Oh, I thought that meant like, no U-turn, no, no U-turn. It's very clear, that's a precept. But the Bible also gives us principles, and those are like those road signs that say, uh, caution ahead. Where? Not exactly sure, just means pay attention. There's a turn in the road, there might be be some uh, construction going on. It, it's a sign that points in the right direction, but it's not a specific instruction. So the Bible speaks about clothes and modesty, but it doesn't speak the way that a lot of religious people have spoken. It includes some things about our dress, but it actually talks about a bigger thing than just our clothes. And I want to just share a scripture with you um, in First Timothy chapter 2. But before I read the verse, let me just tell you the, about the word. The word modesty... In the New Testament uh, is cosmios, is and, and I don't expect you to remember that. I had to look again to remember how to say it. But the word is used two times, just two times in the New Testament, and it's actually translated as a different word each time. The first time you we get the word, cosmios, and I still might not be saying it right. The first time we get the word it's translated as modesty. And so this is a verse that a lot of times you'll hear quoted talking about modesty. And here's the verse. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 9 and 10 He says also I want the women to dress modestly that's the word with decency and propriety adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God The second time he uses the verse is in the same book next chapter 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's talking about the ideal leader in the church, those that we're going to select to be uh, the leaders in the church, those that might serve on an advisory committee or uh, those that would uh, serve as teachers in the church. And here's what it says in 1 Timothy 3, 2. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, that's the same word that was just translated Earlier, for modesty, it's respectable, hospitable and able to teach. So what, what am I saying? Modesty is a whole lot more it has to do with a lot more than just how much skin is showing. The word it talks about being respectable. The word talks about uh, appropriate for the context that you're in. Now I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I already mentioned we had a, a poolside barbecue. Uh, I, I was not bothered at all yesterday. By people in their bathing suit at a poolside barbecue. Didn't really cross my mind once, except that I might use it as an illustration today. But if you had come today in your bathing suit, that would be immodest, right? And, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't look at you and go, I can't believe you would wear a bathing suit. I would say, I can't believe you'd wear a bathing suit here. Because that, that's just out of context, it's just immodest. I, I, when I was 20, I led a missions trip to Guatemala, and, and all the girls were told they needed to wear long skirts. Uh, it, it was a modesty, it was a culture. In that culture, it would have been immodest for their knees to be showing, or for them to be wearing pants. And so we told all the girls, you need to wear long skirts, and so, okay, modest, that's cool, we can do modest. But then one night I was preaching uh, in a little remote village. People are sitting on pine benches. It's a tin roof, no walls, open air church. There's a dog walking around me while I'm preaching. And three women in the front row at the same time all drop the top of their blouse and start breastfeeding their child. And I'm as close to them as I am to my wife right now on the front row. And I'm I'm trying to preach... And thankfully, all of our students were sitting in the back row. Just going, what's the deal? What happened to modesty? But in that context, that was totally appropriate. But in our sexualized, sensual culture, I don't see those body parts in church on Sunday morning and think that's natural. Now, I know there's a movement out there, some folks trying, I'm just telling you, it ain't natural to me, not while I'm preaching. But, it, modest, so modesty is not just about how, how much is uh, showing and how much is covered. Modesty requires discernment about your surroundings. And that's why a lot of times the church has turned people off, because discernment is really a gift of the Spirit. And, and people come into the church, and maybe they're new to the church, and maybe they don't have the Holy Spirit in them, and they certainly don't have much discernment or conviction maybe about uh, about their clothing and, and boy we 're so quick sometimes as as the church to want to point out to people how they should do it when, when in reality uh, the holy Spirit will will lead them as they draw close to Jesus and help them and, and there is a right way to encourage you know the scripture says older women train the younger women and older men teach the younger women at men and there 's a way to handle that, but I just wanna, I just want to go back quickly because this is This is a real question uh, for a lot of people. What's right? What's wrong? I want to go back to that verse that I read in 1 Timothy, chapter 2. He said, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves. I'll just stop there and say that he's not, he's not being a prude here and saying, you know, you can't wear makeup, you got to wear ankle length dresses and have your hair in a bun all the time and you, you know, you can't be fashionable. No, he's, the whole context of what he's saying is about coming to worship. So let's just keep that in mind too. He's not, he's not down at the, the local bar, you know, trying to tell people how they're supposed to dress. He's in church. He's saying this is, he said Adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or, or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. Here's the, the main point here. He says, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So the women are commanded to adorn themselves in a way that's fitting for worship. So how, how should a woman dress if she's professing to worship God? And I'm speaking to women primarily because that's who he's speaking to in this verse. He's talking about women. We understand it. It applies to, to guys, but uh, girls aren't so troubled when guys are immodest. When, when you girls get it wrong, we just fall over our faces because guys are weak and, and, and lust is a real snare of the enemy, and that's just a reality. But uh, what Paul is saying is, he's saying, look, when you come, adorn yourself with good deeds. And here's what's happening in the culture that we miss because we, we see modesty, we think clothing. The reality was, in the culture that he was writing to in Ephesus, a lot of the people were adorning themselves. They were putting fine pearls and lace in their hair and doing these uh, elaborate things to to show their wealth. It, it was it was a thing about notoriety. It was it was as much about finances as it was about fashion. So a lot of people are immodest in the church, not because they 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 you know their their clothes are uh, too short or their necklines plunging too far, but because their heart is to put on, like they have more than they do. You know, there's a lot, I, we see it, you know, even on the national level. There's, there's some ministries, you know, that, that seem to be consumed with the appearance of having more and, 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 and a gaudiness about it. And really, that's what Paul's writing to. As much as he's writing about fashion, he's talking about finance, saying don't come in the door trying to... to display how much money you have how much wealth you have by the way that you look let it be more about your good deeds so ultimately modesty is an issue of of your heart modesty is an issue of of my heart so i'm going to give a real practical question uh that you can ask yourself if maybe it's something you've struggled with here's a good question to ask yourself and maybe to to give your daughters to ask themselves if, if they're in that stage when you're getting dressed and you're looking at yourself in the mirror, getting ready to go to church, ask yourself, do I feel sexy in this? Now, I don't mean, do I feel attractive or do I feel beautiful? Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Maybe a better way to say it is, ask yourself, do I feel seductive in this? Because if you do, you probably are. And it's going to affect the way that you act towards other people. If you can look at yourself and go, man, I I feel seductive in this outfit, then it's immodest. You're you're not dressing yourself as a person that is professing to worship God. You're dressing yourself as a person who desires the worship of others. And so, let me just say this. Being beautiful is not a sin. (laughs) Lust is a sin. And as I mentioned a moment ago, guys are weak in this area of sin. Much more than women are. We're weak. And so when you dress seductively, intentionally, you're enticing people to sin. Now let me say on the other side of that, you're not responsible for my sin. My sin's not your fault. His sin's not her fault. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying that it's your responsibility to keep the men right with God. What I'm saying is it's, it's an issue of your own heart. It's an issue of the heart that, that when you dress, you do it in a way that honors God. I'll say it this way and, and leave the point alone. We're not responsible for each other's behavior. But we are responsible to one another, to be honorable honorable in all ways and uh yesterday uh jason and i we were talking about different scripture translations and we got to talking about the message and uh i i read a scripture about uh how to dress in church out of the message bible and i just thought man this is this is so cool i love the way eugene peterson writes this so i want to read this verse to you it's out of first peter chapter three verse three and four if you want to look it up later but here's what he says he says, what matters is not your outer appearance, the styling of your hair, the jewelry you wear, the cut of your clothes, but your inner disposition. Cultivate inner beauty, the gentle, gracious kind that God delights in. So I'll just say on that, on that point of what does the Bible say about modesty and clothing, that it is an issue of the heart. And that in all circumstances, our responsibility as the people of God is to be a reflection of, of God, to, to be uh, light, to be salt in the earth. And so uh, nothing wrong with fashion, nothing wrong with looking good, but uh, having a heart that says, I'm not, I'm not doing this in the way that's going to draw uh, undue attention to myself, especially in the context that the Bible talks about it, especially in a worship gathering. Now, I I could go on and on and tell you stories about how this has been done wrong. uh, But I won't. (laughs) But I want to do something at at the conclusion here of this this message today. Because we've tackled a bunch of different questions. And here's where my heart is. I want to come back to where we started last Sunday. And I want to land here again. God's Word is not only supernatural practical it's very practical and uh my my wife was having a conversation with our oldest daughter earlier this week and i I won't say what the conversation was about because i don't want to you know embarrass her or anything i didn't ask her if i could talk about this but after the conversation my wife and i were talking and uh and and morgan was just she was just sharing some convictions with her mom and some things that she believed and after the conversation day came to me and she said some of the stuff she was saying was just so wise. It was so good. I'm thinking, like, where did this kid come from? It's so awesome. And, and I want to commend you for that, Morgan. And, and, and I, want to, I want to, I'm saying this to you because I want to show you where that wisdom came from. Because it's not something that just, you know, up here just bragging about my kid. I, I want to show you where that wisdom comes from and how that wisdom is available for you and for your children. The Bible says in Psalm 119, David's talking about how much he loves the Word of God. And he said, I love the Word, verse 97. In fact, I I know I didn't give you this one either, but Psalm 119, verse 97. He said, how I love your law, I meditate on it all day long. David loved the Word of God. Then he said this, your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. That's what the Word of God does. If you you apply yourself to the Word of God, it'll make you wiser than your enemies. Now, we know we have an enemy. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But God's word makes you wiser than the enemy. When he comes in, the Spirit of God will raise up a standard against him. Then he says these words. He said, I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. That's awesome. That's what the word of God will do. The word of God will give you wisdom. So when my daughter is sitting in her middle school health class, and they start wanting to teach about safe sex, and they want to start uh, teaching things that are contradictory to God's best plan for their life, the Word of God's going to make her wiser than her teachers in that moment. When, when your son or daughter goes off to, to college and, and someone starts trying to deconstruct their faith by some, uh, some theories about uh, evolution or some, some theories uh, that contradict the Word of God, the Word of God Makes me wiser than my enemies. Because I meditate on your statutes, I have more insight than all my teachers. And then look at the next verse. Verse 100, he says, I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. So because I choose to obey God's word, I've got more understanding than the elders. Now there's people in here that have all kinds of understanding. But the reality is I'm equipped to pastor people that are more than twice my age, not because I'm brilliant but because I meditate on the Word. That's what this verse says. Because I meditate on the Word. And that's available for everyone. The next verse, he says, I have kept my feet from evil, every evil path so that I might obey your Word. I'm motivated to obey your Word because I love the Word so much. Here's what happens. When you begin to fall in love with the Word of God, you start avoiding the path of evil. Because every time you start to go down that path, the Word of God comes back to your heart that's why david said i've hidden your word in my heart that i might not sin against god the only word that's going to keep you from sin is the sin is the word that's in your heart the, the word in this book is not going to keep you from sin if you don't know it but if you meditate on it if you love the word then all of a sudden you find yourself keeping your feet from the evil path i i, I say this jokingly but kind of serious I, I i have plenty of uh sins in my past and i i sinned a lot as a kid but i never did it successfully and what I mean by that is, I, I, would, I would know I wasn't supposed to do it, I would do it anyway, and then I'd feel miserable because I did it. That's what this verse is talking about. The reason I couldn't sin successfully is because the Word of God was in my heart. My parents put it in my heart, my Sunday school teachers put it in my heart, my youth pastor, my kids' church workers, I read it for myself. And so even though I really wanted to go down the path of sin, I was a miserable sinner. That's what the Word of God will do for you. You'll find yourself keeping from the evil path. Let me read the next verse to you. He said, I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. That's why why the word of God is so important. The Holy Spirit wants to teach you. The Holy Spirit wants to teach you the word. If you'll begin to meditate on it, if you'll begin to read it, he will teach you. And then he says this, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Now, you might not be there today. There might be a whole lot of wrong paths that you love. You're just being honest. I mean, sin is fun for a season. But when you fall in love with the Word of God, it's not about forcing yourself into some list of rules that I've got to try to be straight-laced and walk the line because I'm going to be a Christian. No, You fall in love with a Savior who accepted you just the way you are. And you fall in love with His Word until it becomes like honey to your lips. And then you find yourself at a place somewhere down the road. Maybe it takes six months. Maybe it takes six years. But somewhere down the road, you look back and you realize, I hate every wrong path. The stuff I used to love to do, I can't stand doing that anymore. And when I say the stuff I used to say, it grieves my heart. Why, why does it bother? It didn't used to bother me to say that. Why does it bother me now? Because the Spirit of God is at work in your life. So more than just answering a few questions, my heart and my desire for each and every one of us is that we fall in love with this book, that we fall in love with God's Word. Now, I want to ask you to stand with me as we conclude this service today. I want to ask you to stand, and I just want to... I want to encourage you with this thought, right out of Psalms 119. I want to pray this prayer over us. He says in verse 104 again, I gain understanding from your precepts, that's the commands of God. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. We gain understanding from God's Word. That's God's heart for you. It's God's heart for me that this week we'll gain understanding. Maybe this week you're going to open up the Word more consistently and intentionally than you have in the last several weeks. God wants you to gain understanding. Maybe you need to couple that time with, with fasting. I, I don't know. But, but God wants to give you understanding. If you're, if you're questioning, you know, in a practical thing, and you know, we use the practical example of modesty, but maybe it's something else. You're going, you know, what does the Bible say about movies? Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about movies, but it speaks a lot about the heart. And if you'll fall in love with the word, God will give you understanding. So I want us to pray once again with everyone standing together. Can we just bow our heads? God, I just pray over this whole house. Lord, I don't know how, how close or how far... People in this room feel from you. But God, I know that the Spirit of Jesus right now is drawing us towards you. You're not pushing people down. You're not turning them away. The Spirit is drawing us towards Jesus. And that's why we have determined as a church that our our goal, our purpose, is to lead people from where they are to where God wants them to be. And the way we're going to do it is by pointing them to the absolute authority Of your word. God thank you that your word. Gives us understanding. So much so Lord God that. We become wiser than the schemes of the enemy. God thank you that your word gives us insight. Greater insight even than our teachers. God I thank you Lord that your word gives us understanding. Even beyond that of our elders. God, I thank you that because I've hidden your word in my heart, I'm starting to avoid evil paths that I used to tread down. God, for all of us today, may, not, not because of any religious determination, but because the word of God on the inside of our heart, the next time we come to that evil path that we've tripped and stumbled down before, God, may we avoid it. May we go around it because we love your word. God, may your word become sweet like honey to us. We don't want time in your word to be drudgery. God, we want it to be joy. And God, I pray that you give us understanding in your word that we'll get to the place where we look back over our our lives and we can say, like David, I hate every wrong path because my delight is in you. Because I want to please you, I want to honor you. God, I thank you for your grace today. I thank you for a second chance, I thank you for a new beginning. For those here today that feel like they've stumbled and missed it, Lord God, thank you that we can begin right now again, by grace, to say, Jesus, I I receive your forgiveness of my sins. Help me by your Holy Spirit to walk according to your word today. Thank you, Lord God, for meeting us in the pages of your word. Corporately and individually. In Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. Amen. Listen, before you go, I just want to one more time.